Hi there, welcome to Ed's Up, the podcast all about children and those who care for them. I'm Dr. Melody Musgrove. And I'm Dr. Kathy Grace. We're with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. In these days of student protest, several old-timers like to remind other old-timers about the student protests that some say led to the end of the Vietnam War. Whether historians would agree those demonstrations contributed to the U.S. withdrawal of troops, there's something to be said about youth taking a leadership role in a cause that's bigger than themselves. Reflecting on social movements in the last 60-plus years, we see young people at the forefront. Consider the Little Rock Nine, a group of nine African-American students who enrolled in Little Rock, Arkansas Central High School in 1957, which resulted in the governor's deployment of soldiers to the school to support the segregationists and blocking the students' entrance to the school. As an illustrator and journalist, Tracy Sugarman covered the nearly 1,000 student volunteers who traveled to the Mississippi Delta to assist black citizens in the South in registering to vote in the 1960s. The Freedom Summer is hailed as the beginning of an attempt to register African-Americans to vote in Mississippi and contributed to the growing national attention to the inequality of rights between black and white citizens across the country. In Birmingham, Alabama, children made history by marching in the Children's Crusade. This march was covered on the national news, and as the water hoses were turned on hundreds of unarmed children and arrests made by the thousands, the tide began to change and America took notice. The children struck a nerve, and the civil rights movement was energized. Today, we're fortunate to have Stephen Levingston, nonfiction editor of The Washington Post and author of the book Kennedy and King, as our guest. This interview was conducted in the aftermath of the shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School in Parkland, Florida. Before we talk about your recent column, we want to find out a little about you. Can you tell us how you came to be the nonfiction editor of the Washington Post and author of several books, the most recent being Kennedy and King, The President, the Pastor, and the Battle Over Civil Rights? Well, I, I feel like I'm very lucky to have the job at the Washington Post. I'm editing nonfiction book reviews. All my life, I basically have been very interested in books and in writing, in particular in writing. And um, ever since I was a young kid, I, I wanted to be involved in some way with, with writing um, and in the book world. And when I went to college, though, I studied history, so I became very interested in history as well. And then I, I went to graduate school in journalism and wound up in journalism to try to um, do as much writing as I could. And in journalism, I became, um, I kind of fell over into financial journalism and spent a lot of time overseas and in Asia and in Beijing and Hong Kong. And then I spent a few years in, in Paris as well as a financial journalist, but my heart was always in books and writing, other kinds of things. And then I came to the Washington Post and worked for a little while at, on the financial side and was fortunate when this nonfiction editing job came up, I was really fortunate to, to get the opportunity to do it. And all along, I was trying to write books as well. Way back many years ago, I wrote a book when I was uh, working my first job out of college, I guess. I I was living in San Francisco. I wrote a book about the historic San Francisco ships that were used to ply the waters there and about the establishment of the Maritime Museum. And then when I was a financial journalist, I wrote a book about um, this whiz kid who was a young um, high school student. I think he was like a senior or a junior, and he had created his own mutual fund, which was doing very well. At the time, I was working for the Wall Street Journal, and I wrote a story about him for the Wall Street Journal, and a publisher came to me and asked if I could write a book about him or write about his his strategy. So he and I collaborated on that. 
But after that, I've written these other books, one about a celebrated crime in Paris, uh, which came out a couple years ago. And then the latest one is the Kennedy and King book about President John Kennedy and Martin Luther King and their relationship during the civil rights movement. Well, I want to ask you if you could recall, because obviously history has been a passion of yours from way back. As a child, did you have an attraction to history, or was there somebody in your life that you felt close to, that read to you a lot? We're always interested in how writers became writers and historians became historians, and I guess you're one of both. Yeah, a little bit. I don't know. I was always interested in history, and um, it might have been my father who was a bit of a history buff himself, and I think the reason I wanted to become a writer, it'll sound silly, but I lived in a very noisy household. It was a small household, but everyone was very noisy, and I was very quiet, and the only way I could get anything across or make make myself heard really was writing things down, so I began writing kind of at a young age and just trying to express myself as clearly as I could um, amid the noise of the others in the family. So I guess that's one way to think of it. (laughs) Well, and that's what early childhood educators say all the time, is that children who write also have good skills in terms of organizing their thoughts and putting things into a format which people can understand sometimes better than if you were trying to verbalize it. So you just help reinforce that. To talk a little bit about a column that you wrote that I read, Children Changed America Before Braving the Fire Hoses and Police Dogs for Civil Rights. This was, of course, very timely given the situation that had occurred in Florida, but I found the title intriguing because there is a reference to the group of school children that were arrested in Birmingham in 1963 for protesting school segregation. So how did you come about and that particular or draw that comparison between those two events? Well, um, the Kennedy and King book is always in my mind these days because it's, it's still around and I'm still talk, I'm still out there talking about it, various groups and whatnot. And um, I was listening to the terrible tragedy in, in Florida and then I started seeing the children come out afterwards and really putting their heart out and their idealism and, and their passion into trying to change these laws that they feel are contributing to the series of shootings in schools and elsewhere in the country. And it just sort of clicked with me. I don't know how it came about, but I, I, it just occurred to me that, well, that was, was one of the major features of the civil rights movement in, in um, Birmingham, 1963. So I looked back into the book and I sort of saw what I, what, I, what, was, what I wrote about it. And I did find that there were parallels. I mean, the children, you know, both were called upon at a time to bring a brighter light on a subject that wasn't necessarily getting the light that it needed to get. In, in our current day, that these kids have brought a very sharp light on, on gun laws in this country. And in the battle in Birmingham, it, was, it came at a time, the children kind of rose to the forefront at a time when the Birmingham movement was having a difficult period. It was sort of dying out. It wasn't getting the attention that Martin Luther King and the other leaders wanted it to have. The nation really wasn't paying attention. So James Bevel, who was one of the um, key strategists for Martin Luther King, came up with the idea of get, getting children involved in, in the front lines in the March, March for Equal Rights. At first, they were very concerned about this because they were concerned about children getting hurt. They were concerned about, you know, children just being involved in that sort of an adult world. And Martin Luther King had to debate with himself very deeply. He, you know, he prayed and he thought and he tried to figure out whether this would be the right thing to do because he was concerned about the children's um, safety and well-being as well. But he finally came around and said that 
it, it was something that the children were going to do for themselves, in a sense. They were helping to create a new world for their futures as well as for their own, for their parents' futures. And um, their kind of moral authority and their position as being young and determined was bound to gather more attention. And so King finally agreed to, to allow that to happen. And it just seemed to strike the same chord with me when I saw those kids in Florida coming out after the terrible tragedy and, and wanting to get things changed. There's a certain real moral authority about kids on the front lines of any kinds of protest that makes adults stand up and maybe take a measure of their own conscience. And I think that's what happened in both those cases. Well, you mentioned that as part of Dr. King's campaign, that was a strategy that someone brought to him to determine if this would be a way to help keep the message alive. It struck me that the children in Florida, it was more organic or it was something that just came from them, not as much so as part of an organized approach or campaign. Would you agree that perhaps that their uh, messages or how they're going about getting their message out is the same, but based on the circumstances and being a little older in high school, that some of this may be more organized from within rather than from without, if you look at it oh, that way. I think that's absolutely true. And I've, I've watched these young people on the television, um, and you just see how capable and how well-spoken and how smart and, and focused and directed they are. I'm, I have no doubt that they've been organizing this thing in a way that their parents may have had some sort of a role in the background, but I think the kids are really taking the lead here. Most of the organization, I think, um, for the kids today has been through social media, and you know, it's, and then they've been on television quite a lot too, whereas the kids in 63, television was just really coming on strong, and it, it did, you know, their, their protests did appear in the news in the, in the evenings, but it certainly didn't have the range of, of media opportunities that these kids have today. So there, there are different forces at work in different, in different areas, that, but, al- but also sort of create a different um, approach, perhaps, to how young people could protest in those two different times. Well, I think the one thing you mentioned was social media, and that has certainly changed communication dramatic ways, even in the last 15 years. One of the, I guess, parallels that I drew from your column was that children in Birmingham grew up to be voters, and uh, even though it might have been several generations that passed, but their voice was heard in the, at the ballot box, uh, I assume in some measure when uh, President Obama was elected. I see these kids in Florida within a very short period of time becoming of age to vote, and I just wonder how their voting block or their power may influence politics in the future. What do you think? Yeah, I wonder about that, too. And I, I, Some of these kids are, seem so smart and well-spoken and have such great ideas. And I've been thinking lately, I wonder if this event, this terrible event that they all had to experience, has basically changed some of their lives in a way that they'll be doing things that they never thought they would be doing, maybe getting into politics and and wanting to change the world, they didn't expect to be doing that. They probably expected to be doing something quite different. But this is how futures are made. And I think it's kind of interesting to talk in terms of how personal lives evolve. Um, you know, these kids' lives are going to evolve, evolve differently probably now because of what they went through in the same way that those kids in Birmingham's lives evolve differently. And how President Kennedy himself evolved during the Birmingham crisis as well. He was not a 
He was not really a civil rights president for most of his term. And by 1963, he had evolved partly because of these children to understand that he needed to to grow and change and accept and open his mind to things that he might not open them to open it to before. You know, the same way that these kids are sort of opening their minds to things they never thought that they would be thinking about. One other thing that's kind of interesting to me, I, it's kind of sort of related, but not really, is the different moods from the, the way that the kids protested in Birmingham and the way these kids are doing it now. Of course, these kids now are coming off of a terrible tragedy, and they're they're still in grief, basically, and they're still in shock, and they're very serious, and they're and they're approaching this with with you know real dignity and sort of you know caution and and determination in a in a quiet sort of serious manner. Whereas the kids in, in the Birmingham thing, I was surprised to learn in many ways, they saw this as a chance to have some fun. They when they went out and protested, they came out of the church and they were dancing down the steps of the church and they were singing and and they were they were just having a great time as they were heading into these very serious um, confrontations with police and police dogs and fire hoses. But when they first set off, they they sort of approached it as sort of like a spiritual um, activity that involved a lot of a lot of joy and and a joy in their passion. Whereas the kids today, their their passion doesn't strike me as terribly joyful. Sounds seems much of a much different ill. Well, I think you're right in terms of the factor that put all this into motion. Uh, it certainly was sobering and unexpected. Even though we've had school shootings in other places over at least a decade, nobody ever thinks it's going to be at their school. Right. Uh, there's been more discussion as a result of that shooting about arming teachers in public schools, and uh, I'm struggling with that myself because being an educator, I, I find that to be something I would have never, ever planned to have to talk with teachers or prospective teachers about. When we look at the ramifications that are cultural, possibly, in, in changing the culture even more so in this country, what would be your thoughts or your impressions where we are right now as far as cultural acceptance versus cultural change or shock that would require us to change? In terms of how we, how we regulate and manage guns? The guns and the whole situation of mental health issues and what we've addressed, what we haven't addressed, what we seem to talk a lot about but never get around to doing, and that seems to be a systemic thing with the government over the last several years, not just recently, about a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. Uh, So in terms of looking at the ultimate uh, successes that Dr. King's march brought about or his campaign brought about, uh, but the high price that he paid personally and others to see that that happened, uh, where do you see this particular I guess you could say defining point maybe in our country's culture. Yeah, that's, that's a really hard and good question. Um, I think it probably in some cases has to do with the mood of, of the nation and the mood of the, of the majority of the electorate. Um, I think for a long time there really hasn't been a strong movement within the electorate and, and the representatives who are part of that electorate to do anything serious about this. 
And I think that was the case with segregation, too, for a long time. There was polls, I remember, with segregation um, before the Birmingham marches, maybe 5% of the population, if I remember correctly, thought that, you know, racial issues and, and segregation um, was a was a major concern for the country. After the, those, those um, marches and when the children were in the forefront, that jumped up to about more than 50%, I think, and which also gave Kennedy a chance to actually respond because he felt that the public will was behind him as well. I think a lot of it, a lot of it probably has to do with the public will, although in some ways this thing that we're facing today is just, as you said in the question, it's so complicated. It has so many facets um, from, you know, the guns themselves to mental health issues to protecting students to you just you, you could just go on and on for all of the, the issues that cut across this thing. And then you, you layer in the differences between states. Various states have, have, have a desire to, to go in one direction, whereas other states have a desire to go in another direction. On the federal level, there is great conflict and debate that way. So it becomes really almost an impossible logjam or stalemate that maybe this time, maybe, and it, we've seen it happen time and again that, that nothing does change, but maybe this time with the force of these kids, if they do, if they're able to keep it in the forefront and able to keep this, this matter, um, you know, in people's minds, and if public opinion is changing in a way that it hasn't changed before all of these other um, terrible killings, if it finally is changing, then maybe somebody or maybe a group of people like Congress and, and legislators in the state level will actually start doing something. But it's just, it's impossible to know. You know, you look to you look to the president for leadership. President Trump has has tried sometimes to say the right things and to do the right things, but he seems to be all over the map. One day he'll lean one way, and the next day he leans the other way. He had a meeting with um, a bipartisan group of legislators, and uh, the New York Times was just reporting a little while ago that he had shocked everybody there by saying that he wanted to um, came out. He's coming out in favor of a lot of the of the issues that the NRA had opposed for many, many years. He was calling for comprehensive, you know, gun control that to expand background checks. He wanted to keep guns from the mentally ill. He wanted to secure schools and restrict gun sales from some young people. This is unheard of, really, from this president and from almost any president, especially when the National Rifle Association has been so strong. This also might mean that the NRA is under pressure now and is losing some of the power that it had. So, but all of these things seem to change moment to moment and day to day. So it's it's really hard to know, and I'm I'm no expert on it, but I I just know what I hear, and and these are the sort of the strains you hear as as you just listen to what's out there. Well, I wish we could continue our conversation, but we've just about run out of time. One more thought uh, that you might want to share with us in terms of what you found that was a surprise to you when you did the research around President Kennedy and Dr. King. Was there any one or two things that proved to be surprising, even though I know you were a study of, student of history prior to that, but was there something that really just struck you as, as surprising? I think what, what was surprising to me was what was the kernel of the book, and that's why I wanted to do it, and that was the influence that Martin Luther King managed to have on, on President Kennedy and to lead him along a moral path. And the fact that Kennedy had the capability and the instinct and the willingness to sort of 
evolve and and mature as a as a president, as a man, and and as a leader, so that he could move from being a guy who was really not that interested in civil rights when he came into office. Um, he was more concerned about you know the economy and the Soviet Union and getting someone on the moon, those sorts of things. And civil rights was really not something that was in the, in the forefront of his thoughts. But with Martin Luther King constantly reminding him and constantly um, badgering him in a way and setting himself up as this moral authority, Kennedy was gradually, piece by piece, knocked down in a, in a way that he began to listen. And to the point where he, when he finally gave his great speech in, in June, on June 11th, 1963, announcing um, legislation, like civil rights legislation. He almost was channeling some of Martin Luther King's remarks in his letter from Birmingham when he was locked up in Birmingham during Birmingham protests, that famous letter from Birmingham that he wrote. Some of the speech that Kennedy uttered that night really was some of the lines almost that, that King could have said himself. So it's these kind of surprising things when you get as deep as you can into a subject and you start listening to how characters evolve and as humans in history, I just find it find it endlessly fascinating. Well, I'm sure the historians 30 years from now are going to have a lot to write about in terms of the times that we're living in right now. And again, we want to thank you so much for being with us. And one more time, your book is Kennedy and King, The President, The Pastor, and The Battle Over Civil Rights. So thank you so much, Stephen, and we look to maybe visit with you at another time. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much. Well, Melody, that was certainly a sobering interview and gave us a lot to think about. Uh, as you said, this was done in a relatively short period of time after the shooting in the school in Parkland, Florida. Uh, unfortunately, we've had more of those types of things happen in the last several months since we're a few months past the shooting in Florida. We keep having the same conversations about should we have gun control laws that are stricter? Should we have security? Should we have uh, situations where there's more social work done with families and homes? And it goes on and on and on. But the question is, do we seem to be in a time in history where there seems to be more access to the use of violence to solve what some people perceive as issues around certain groups or are we just in a time right now where we seem to have more folks who are that are not quite thinking straight who have access to guns that are just using them in terrible ways? Well, Kathy, what you know history has taught us is that when inequality grows in a country, regardless of what country it is, anywhere in the world, when inequality grows, then you begin to see more civic unrest. You see more violence. Uh, and you know, in this country, I think we're seeing more divisiveness. Our nation is becoming more polarized in terms of politics, in terms of our policies, in terms of our beliefs. And there is this you know, promotion of an us versus them mentality which is, I think, one of the reasons that we're seeing more and more violence. We just keep seeing, you know, and it, what's so unfortunate is that oftentimes these involve children and involve young people, as in the shooting in, in Florida. So you know, I, I think you know, I, I, there's no, this is very complicated. There's no one solution, of course, but part of the answer is going to be to stop 
the polarization of the American people and to begin to talk about us as American citizens rather than those people. You know, they belong over there. I, for In order for me to get something, they have to give up something uh, and to talk more about what unites us as American citizens uh, rather than, you know, what divides us and how we can you know, become more segregated or more isolated instead of being more united. I think it's a good point about isolation because if you read the accounts of some of the individuals who have committed the acts, they were pretty well uh, in isolation. They were loners. They were defined as loners, whether they were young people or people that were in older years, adult age folks. So the question is, as a society and as a time when we are building children's self-esteem and when we're trying to help children feel that they are a part of a classroom community or a social community, uh, that we have to be diligent in making sure that we identify as educators or as parents uh, situations where our children could be bullied or situations where our children are being in some way excluded so that we can make sure that is not something that is going to continue through a year of schooling or a year of life, period. Uh, we've given it excuses that, well, boys will be boys, or, oh, they don't mean that, or, you know, toughen up and so forth. With the social media situation that we have today, the bullying and the escapades, I guess you could say, that some people might think are cute, are truly damaging uh, from a mental health standpoint, not to bring into this, but uh, increased numbers of kids that commit suicide. Uh, So I think that generally speaking, we have lots of things that we can do. Primary thing that you mentioned is to get us all thinking again as Americans, all of us as Americans, and that that is the overriding principle that we try to live by and that we try to teach. So we like to end each podcast with a poem. So today's lit bit is If I Can Stop One Heart From Breaking by Emily Dickinson. And this is from familyfriendlypoems.com. If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching or cool one pain or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. That's If I Can Stop One Heart From Breaking by Emily Dickinson. Please give your children the gift of poetry. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.